In this report, head-to-head EV versus the abomination we know and love as Australians as the V6 diesel CO2 belching dual cab ute. What is actually better on the carbon dioxide front? The facts might absolutely shock you on this one. I'm Jacob Logan from AutoExpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap. And I don't care what they are, dude. V6 diesel ute, EV. As long as you're happy, it's totally copacetic as far as I'm concerned. Website, card, Australia only, etc. Now, it doesn't get more basic than this, but I suspect the vast majority of the population in the developed world would fail the test, the challenge, the double dead dingoes dong a dare, which I'm about to throw at your feet. If you burn one litre of petrol in an average Australian car, it's going to take you about 10 kilometres down the road. And in doing that, your engine's also going to suck in about 9 cubic metres of air, which is 9,000 litres of air. So one litre of petrol, 9,000 litres of air, magic combustion voodoo, motive power, 10 kilometres later... I want you, as a thought experiment, to do that. And then I challenge you to write down, with the correct answers, the top three things that come out of the exhaust pipe during that process in order. Because if you hope to engage in a meaningful way with the whole CO2 automotive proposition and the quote-unquote decarbonisation of the fleet, which is such a bullshit term, in my view then you'd want to know the facts. So write them down for me now, dude. What are the top three things coming out the exhaust when you drive 10 kilometres? This video is brought to you by Manscaped, highlighting a pretty serious issue today. I bet you didn't know, but one man every hour, every day, is diagnosed with testicular cancer. It's the most common cancer for blokes aged 15 to 35. April is Testicular Cancer Awareness Month and that's why I wanted to take a second in this report to talk to you about this important issue. See, for the past 12 months I've been trotting my ageing father around for endless scans, tests, consultations, infusions. It's an endurance event for him and me and it's pretty confronting from time to time. The big C affects everyone, even if you're not the one personally who suffers with it. So any awareness campaign, I'm up for that, right? 100%. Manscaped has partnered with the Testicular Cancer Society to help you take care down there. Now, I guess you'd call that a philosophical alignment of broad objectives. More on that in just a sec. If you pick up the Manscaped Lawnmower 4.0, you're not just helping yourself get better groomed, you'll be helping dudes just like you everywhere. It's cordless and waterproof, it's got ceramic blades with skin-safe technology, which really helps reduce the risk of nicks and cuts. Cordless inductive charging, powerful 7000 RPM motor and an LED spotlight. It's shower and travel friendly, like Good to go. Manscaped has partnered with the Testicular Cancer Society to spread awareness for men's health and early cancer detection, plus providing support for the fighters, survivors and families impacted by testicular cancer. 
Manscaped is donating $25,000 to the Testicular Cancer Society. So maybe you should perform a few simple routine self-checks while you otherwise tune things up down there with Manscaped's Lawnmower 4.0 and the mighty Crop Mop Ball Wipes. The twins are going to love it and early detection is so vital. Do yourself a favour, visit manscaped.com TCS to learn how to check yourself and share their funny educational check yourself video to help save lives and of course balls. As always you can use my promo code AEJC for 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com slash auto expert. Join the Manscaped movement now and don't forget to take all due care of your pair down there. The answers are, and I went back to basic high school chemistry to work this out, and it's not that hard, but you kind of do have to pay attention at school. You get nine kilos of nitrogen gas. And that's because the air that you're breathing now, dude, is 78% nitrogen. And it's relatively inert, and it just gets sucked in one end and farted out the other end and really doesn't do all that much reacting except if something goes wrong inside the engine. So it's mostly just really, really warmed up nitrogen gas coming out of exhaust. Number two by mass. And the way to do this is by mass because obviously they're gases. So the volumes only make sense in terms of temperature and pressure, whereas the mass is definitive irrespective of the conditions in which the gas finds itself. So nine kilos of nitrogen gas followed by 2.2 kilos of CO2 in position two. And Finally, one kilo of water, which is about a litre of water, but obviously it comes out the exhaust as steam, which is a colourless gas, except it's always a colourless gas, but if the exhaust system is cold and it's a wintry sort of morning and you've only just started the car, then the steam will condense on contact with the atmosphere, and that's the white plumes that you see in places like Canada and New York and where it gets cold in winter you see those white plumes it's actually just water vapor condensing out of steam coming out of the exhaust so nitrogen gas co2 water that's what happens all right one kilometer of driving equals 220 grams of co2 on average in the average Australian car with petrol it's slightly different with diesel but only slightly and from a ballpark point of view it's pretty much the same although the thermal efficiency of a diesel engine is slightly higher so you get a bit more work out of it but the chemistry is similar let's put it that way and per kilo of fuel it's very similar indeed so anyway on pollution Okay, much is made of the term pollution and people talk about CO2 as if it's pollution, but it's really not. The CO2 thing is a real problem around the world, but pollution is a different animal, right? Pollution is what happens when you get particles that can poison people like uh, 2.5 microns and smaller, which can go through your lungs and get into your blood and give you all kinds of horrible diseases. And oxides of nitrogen which is what happens when you run an engine too lean and the nitrogen decides to hook up with some excess oxygen in the combustion chamber because there's not enough fuel for the oxygen to go home with and have fun and then there's also unburned hydrocarbons and carbon monoxide and things of that nature so 
they're all pollution, right? And they can all be subverted with clever engineering. You can filter the particles and you can catalytically convert carbon monoxide and oxides of nitrogen into things that are less harmful. You can, you can take carbon monoxide, which is a deadly poison in very small concentrations, and catalytically convert it to CO2 in a catalytically, uh, catalytically converter and a catalytic converter, right? You can get uh, oxides of nitrogen in the same way and just catalytically convert them into nitrogen gas and oxygen gas or whatever they reduce to. So you can do all of those things and exhaust gets less polluting. But the stuff you can't subvert is the water and the CO2 because that's intrinsic to the combustion proposition. When you burn a hydrocarbon fuel, you produce CO2 and water. That's the purest form of the combustion equation. So there's really no clever engineering way to deal with the production of CO2. You can burn less fuel by making engines more efficient, thereby doing more work, more transportation with every litre. But you really can't change the fact that every kilo of hydrocarbon fuel is locked to a particular amount of carbon dioxide. And that's kind of a problem, right? So the CO2 thing is intrinsic and we can't really hack that with clever engineering. So what I wanted to do was look at some big lardy assed EVs because I don't know you remember when EVs first came out and we saw vehicles like the Mitsubishi iMiv and we saw you know tiny little sort of kooky EVs that you really didn't want to drive but they were kind of small and energy efficient because battery technology wasn't there and in the intervening couple of decades 15 years 20 years whatever it's been We've seen this explosion in the size of EVs and they've become big, heavy EV shitters. And I mean the Tesla Model Y, for example, and the Hyundai Ioniq 5 and 6, the Kia EV6 and the even more ludicrous EV9, etc. These vehicles are ridiculously large and this is an efficiency issue. It's a real efficiency issue because they become aspirational. People think, oh, I'll buy one of them. It's marvellous. I'm affluent. I can afford it. And I'm doing the right thing. Well, dude, are you really? Because we've got to look at the facts on this one. These vehicles are cloaked implicitly in environmental virtue and they're sort of masquerading as planet savers would be the best way to put it. And this is a proposition for dumbasses who really don't pay attention at school and don't have what I would consider the baseline level of scientific literacy required to function in an informed way in our society. So I'm going to do that for you now, right? We're going to educate ourselves up using the facts. And if you are one of these virtue mongers, then I'd like to say I'm sorry because this is probably going to offend your sensibilities, but I'm not, because offending your sensibilities with the facts, that's called education, right? And it's up to you to recalibrate, or if you can, find a hole in my argument, all right? I challenge you to do that. This is also not a bad faith analysis that I'm whipping out here. I'm not trying to make these big EV shitters look bad, they're doing that on their own, and I'm using good faith assumptions and the best data I can find. 
you got to do that if you want to get the crew of Apollo 13 back. I mean, that's just how it works. You've got to use the best data and make the best assumptions and get the best brains in the business on the job, and then three dudes don't get lost in space, which is exactly what happened in the case of Apollo 13. So you can't divorce EVs from CO2 in Australia. You can't divorce them anyway, but it's a real problem in Australia. So you can't divorce combustion and CO2, but you can't divorce EVs and CO2. And I'm going to lay out why, right? Because steel, which makes up the structure of most of these desirable big lardy ass TVs, steel and coal go together. You can't, you've got to have heat, obviously, but you've got to have metallurgical coal as well. So even if you come up with a different means of heating the raw materials to make the steel, you still need the carbon to turn iron into steel. And yeah, there are some green steel thought experiments and pilot programs around the joint, but they don't scale. You can't bring it up to a humanity-level proposition. It can't be done. Coal is the only thing that turns iron into steel. And if you want to live in a reasonably advanced society, you need the steel. So have a guess how much CO2 it takes to make one tonne of steel, which is roughly a car, okay? It takes 1.83, 1.84 tonnes of CO2 to be emitted intrinsically to make one tonne of steel. And when you look around at all those developing cities in uh, parts of what was the developing world now rapidly turning into the industrialised world in places like China and India, the amount of steel involved is staggering. The amount of iron ore that leaves the Pilbara in Australia and heads for places like South Korea to be turned into cars or to China or India to be turned into all the infrastructure that we take for granted, the skyscrapers and the bridges and the machinery and all of that stuff. It's 1.8 something tonnes of CO2 for every tonne of steel that gets deployed modernising the world. And you can't do that to the world without steel. So that's a real problem. And batteries for EVs are even worse and they're harder to uh, clarify in terms of... Damn it. Still there, bastard. Got it. Batteries are even worse because estimates there are so varied. So I went looking for a good CO2 estimate for the kinds of batteries, the lithium-ion batteries in that four, five, six hundred kilo range that you use for these big lardy-assed EVs, all right? I looked at MIT, which I respect MIT, but their estimate, their, their most readily accessible estimate is like, how long's a piece of string, dude? Because they say between 2.4 tonnes and 16 tonnes for one of those big 75 to 80 kilowatt hour batteries that you find in an EV6, an EV9, a Ionic 5 or 6, Tesla Model 3 Performance or a uh, Tesla Model Y. Okay, so that's not helpful. Between 2.4 and 16 tonnes is like how long's a piece of string. So then I went to the International Council on Clean Transportation, which has a relatively recent report that cites 11 different academic assessments 
of exactly this topic, how much CO2 goes with how much battery for cars. And I went to PolitiFact as well. And the best estimate I can come up with for China, which is where 75% of the world's lithium-ion batteries are made, is about 100 kilos of CO2 for every kilowatt hour of battery production. All right, so just multiply it by 75 or 80 times 100 equals, let's call it, seven and a half tonnes of CO2 just to make the battery, right? And that means you've got this seven and a half tonne of CO2 debt before the EV has even moved one inch down the road, right? That's like the upfront CO2 cost of just making the battery. And it's important to do that analysis because when you're comparing it with a combustion vehicle, obviously the combustion vehicle is unencumbered by this upfront debt. And these are called facts. There's really no getting around it. And if you're an academic who understands these kinds of things, you're sitting there going, yeah, obviously, right? Everybody else is just sort of bombarded by this marketing from the deniers and the planet savers and they're kind of going blah, 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 because they don't have the fundamental scientific literacy, which is a huge problem for such an important issue. So this seven and a half tonnes of CO2, which is the upfront debt from the battery construction for your lardy EV, that's about 35,000 kilometres of driving in an average petrol car in Australia, at one litre for every 10 kilometres kind of thing. So you think, oh, okay, well, I'd pay that back in just duos years and if it were as simple as that and the electricity that you were using to charge your EV without question, every time, without exception, was totally green with no CO2, then yay you. Because, yeah, you get that back in two and a bit years of average driving and then you're in front on a CO2 perspective. But it doesn't really work like that. Even though you might be able to do that yourself as an individual, it doesn't scale to a population-level deployment of EVs because we don't have population-level green electricity to feed the EVs. So I went and had a look at Australian electricity and the contemporary composition of it. What is the CO2 impost of using electricity? Because Electricity is not CO2-free either, although much is made of photovoltaic arrays and wind farms and alternatives of this nature. And to get the information on that, I went to fundamental data from the Australian government. There's a clean energy regulator, and the website there is cleanenergyregulator.gov.au, somewhat uncreatively, right? The total electricity generation for Australia in financial year 2019-2020 was 219 billion, with a B, megawatt hours. This is really simple mathematics with really big numbers, okay? And 157 billion tonnes of CO2 were emitted producing that electricity. This is total electricity for the nation. It includes snowy hydro and all the wind farms and all the photovoltaic arrays contributing to the grid, okay? 
219 billion megawatt hours generated, 157 billion tonnes of CO2. And they're big numbers, but you only have to do one basic calculation with the most basic calculator app available for your mobile phone. And you get one kilowatt hour of electricity is 1.4 kilos of CO2. That's how this works, according to the most recent official credible statistics that I can find. And if you want to say to me that, oh, yeah, but that was three financial years ago, I'd say to you, look at the size of the grid. Look at the inertia in the infrastructure. You can't change the grid dramatically in three years. Changing the composition of the grid is the kind of thing that happens over decades, not the kind of thing that happens over three years. You can massage it a bit around the place and you can retire some old coal-fired plants and you can put in some more photovoltaics, but there's really no population-level substitute for when the sun doesn't shine for 50% of time and for when the wind doesn't blow. So we're going to have to do something about that somehow. And batteries are not going to cut it. They're just not. There's not enough storage capacity in batteries. So the grid intrinsically, if we expand, we get Harry Potter's wand and we go EVs everywhere, then the grid is hardly decarbonised. So one kilowatt hour of electricity currently in Australia on average is 1.4 kilos of CO2. And when you look at, let's say, big heavy shitter that I used for this EV shitter that I used for this example was the Ionic 5 Epic because it's an aspirational EV. People want it. In fact, demand grossly outstrips supply in Australia, partly because Europe's just sucking up all the demand because our softcock regulators don't have a fuel efficiency standard. So there's that. With that car, you get 454 kilometres of range, according to the WLTP uh, range cycle, 77.4 kilowatt hours of battery, and that means that that car is going to take you 5.9 kilometres per kilowatt hour, and just divide by 5.9, dude, one kilometre is going to cost you 0.17 kilowatt hours, so 170 watt hours to go one kilometre. And then when you do the maths on how many kilowatt hours and how much CO2, that's pretty easy as well. School kids should be able to do this. One kilowatt hour, 1.4 kilos of CO2. 240 grams of CO2 are emitted using the grid average. So if we give everyone, if we do Oprah and we go, Ionic 5, epic for you, Ionic 5, epic for you, Ionic 5, epic for you, 15 million times in a parallel universe, then it's 240 grams of CO2 for every kilometre you drive because you've got to charge the car up using grid average electricity. That's just how we roll, okay? And I'm being kind when I do this because the WLTP cycle is hardly realistic. It's better than the previous one, the NEDC or whatever they called it, but WLTP is hardly real world. You actually get less range than that, so the CO2 emissions per kilometre will be higher in practice because the tests are just overly optimistic. And putting that in perspective, like, what does it mean? That's, we've got to cut through to what does that mean? 
And I looked at another big, fat, lardy-ass shitter that's quite desirable, which would be the Ford Ranger Wild Track 3-litre V6. And let's not forget that environmental virtue is a thing in niches in our society. And I'm a believer in the climate change problem. It's definitely anthropogenic. Like, my belief doesn't matter because it's a fact. Like, it's a scientific fact. But... I believe in this problem, but I believe only in manageable fact-based solutions, right? I don't believe in this greenwashing bullshit that all vested interests are into, like, how can we commercialise this and turn this sentiment into our, to our commercial advantage sort of thing. That's what's going on at the moment. It really concerns me because it means we're not going to solve the problem. So in the other camp, which would be the majority of new car buyers, the top three vehicles that get sold every month, three of them, three of the top ten anyway, are dual cab diesel utes. And at the moment, without doubt, the most aspirational diesel ute is the three-litre V6 Ranger Wildtrak. Nobody needs one, but hey, it's hugely aspirational. People want one. Ranger is always one of the top two sellers in the market every month. You can take that to the bank, right? So according to the official specs on that, also ambitiously using the official data, the combined cycle fuel consumption test for ADR, 81, whatever it is now, 02 or something, 222 grams per kilometre of CO2 for the V6 Ranger, okay? Ionic Epic, based on the grid average, 240. Like... The range is better. <laughs> Go figure. It's only slight. It's only 7.5%. And there are some assumptions bound up in this sort of basic numerical analysis. So within the bounds of uncertainty, you'd have to say they're line ball. Except they're not perceived that way, are they? The EV comes wrapped, the big fat lardy ass EV shitter comes wrapped in this cloak of environmental planet saving virtue. And to the planet savers, this has been a real thing with ongoing press releases recently is there's no diesel, well, there's, there's no EV ute that's equivalent to a diesel. Right, And apparently this is a problem. But I don't know that any of these people issuing these releases have done the same basic analysis of the data. And that's what I'm talking about here. Like, if I'm making a mistake, run the numbers if you've got the skills and tell me where I'm wrong in the comments, please. But it would seem that they're close anyway, except that the big lardy-assed EV shitter already has a 7.5 tonne CO2 debt by virtue of manufacturing its battery, which is a component that the dual-cab diesel does not, and therefore it is a CO2 debt that the dual-cab diesel does not pay. So there's that. And there is similar weight all up too. So, you know, the next time some lobby group, some wonk from a lobby group like the FCAI or something, or the Electric Vehicle Council, the next time they start to use this word decarbonise, in relation to the adoption of EVs and alternative technologies. Think back to this video and just position that statement about decarbonisation for what it actually is, because it's just, in my view, a piece of hollow bullshit rhetoric. It's completely meaningless when you consider the composition of the grid. The other thing, right... 
like seven and a half tons greener up front it's actually greener to drive the ranger wild track for like the next 10 years therefore certainly there are greener options than both of those vehicles the big lardy asked ev shitter and the range of wild track if you want to be green you could just buy a small conventional car or a hybrid or a plug-in hybrid so they're greener options as well as long as the total amount of material in the machine is kind of small then it's going to be more efficient there's that okay but a range of wild track with that honking v6 engine is $15,000 cheaper than the big lardy-assed EV shitter. And I'd suggest that you could put a pretty kick-ass solar array on your roof and a decent sort of battery that would also function as an uninterruptible power supply in the event of the grid going down like a power failure. And not only that, it would allow you to do arbitrage with electricity, like you could buy electricity from the grid overnight at off-peak rates and you could burn it during an overcast day, for example, when electricity rates are through the roof. And you could also potentially buy electricity for free from the sun and sell it back to the grid at times when there's a spike in the price. So that's not only greener, it's commercially more viable as well, and it's really going to improve your quality of life during the inevitable power failure, especially if the grid becomes less stable because they retire too much hydrocarbon energy from it and rely too much on intermittent renewables. So there's that to consider as well. Now, car makers they definitely want you to think that you're being virtuous, saving the planet, whatever. When you buy a big EV shitter, there's a lot of money on the line for them in you buying into this fallacy. And certainly there are advantages to buying EVs, notably energy security for our nation and less pollution in our cities, both of which I've talked about at length, and I acknowledge without reservation that they're better at it. EVs are better at both of those things than combustion vehicles, obviously. But there's a lot of rhetoric built up in all of this stuff. Like the manufacturers of ethanol always tell you how green it is and how renewable it is. Well, I would ask them to let me know how much coal they burn keeping the boilers actually boiling because it's a lot right? And you don't burn coal for free. And therefore the green virtue of ethanol just, it's up in smoke like the coal. And it's great for our energy security because it dilutes our dependency on foreign oil by 10%. But it's really not that environmentally virtuous, is what I'm saying. The Electric Vehicle Council is really interesting to me too, because they've got vested interests here. And those vested interests, in my view, are not fully disclosed, or at least the vested interests of the members that, conti that contribute to its existence, right? The Electric Vehicle Council has on its board of directors a seat for those paragons of virtue, environmental virtue at least, Volkswagen. Go figure. That would not be my first choice, but hey, that's how they roll. They've also got two grubby fossil fuel energy retail companies on the board of directors, which would be Origin Energy and Ampol, promoters of EVs. I wouldn't want Volkswagen and Origin Energy and Ampol to be calling the shots about how we're going to contribute in Australia to solving the greenhouse problem. Just saying. 
EVC members, like the Electric Vehicle Council members, also include fleet finance companies like Eclipse, SG Fleet, Custom Fleet and Oryx. And I'd suggest they're not there because of their deep commitment to the environment or the planet or even humanity. They just see this as a fucking gold rush, the gold rush towards EVs, these big, heavy EV shitters that cost a bomb, especially now that the federal government is incentivising the purchase of such vehicles, right? So I think on the balance of probability, the fleet finance companies are probably paying up the... uh, their memberships to the Electric Vehicle Council because they see promotion of electric vehicles as just a ka moment for the bottom line. Plus, there are renowned planet savers such as AGL, Osgrid, Energex, Essential Energy, News Corp. Like, think of all the good News Corp and Rupert, personally, have done for the planet. Why wouldn't they join the Electric Vehicle Council? The South Australian Power Network is there as well. Transgrid, plus those tax-avoiding cocks at Transurban. Quick shout-out to you. Hashtag respect. Plus Valvoline, know what I mean. Western Power and those fat bastards at Westpac. Doubtless hoping to greenwash the shit out of themselves because everyone hates banks. And I particularly hate Westpac because they're cocks, as is their subsidiary, St George. At least that's my experience of them. Anti-environment grubs, or just plain old grubs. That's my assessment. Kicking the tin, right? Just so a dodgy lobby group can hijack the climate problem and make you think that your big, heavy EV shitter is some kind of actual planet-saving solution when the real issue that we have to confront, and it's so difficult, is coal and gas. Without confronting the coal and gas issue, EVs are just the worst kind of sideshow. Like, if you think the bearded lady is bad, and there's nothing wrong with that, especially today. But if you think that's a kind of tacky sideshow in an amusement park, then EVs are even worse. They're even worse. Because it's like, look over here at the bearded lady. Don't worry about the coal and gas projects. Look over here at the EV. That's the way all coal and gas companies and their lobby groups, or the lobby groups which they fund, would like you to think. Because the divorce from coal and gas is going to be properly hard and require proper sacrifices and be properly expensive, which is why they don't want you to look, because it's the most painful divorce ever. And this is a subject on which I can speak with some authority, having been divorced five times. Look at the big fat EV shitter instead, dude, because saving the planet is easy, right? And you can have it all. That's the message. But it only passes if you didn't study thermodynamics. Like, cars are so relatable too because we all hate being stuck in traffic. We all deal with cars every day. We see them, we have to cross the road. We've got to drive in the traffic. From time to time, we smell the exhaust from some filthy truck that's 20 years old and has completely unfiltered exhaust and operates exclusively in the city and things of that nature, which is why electric vehicles are the perfect decoy. Are they not, right? Because 
it's so convenient. The fact that it's untrue is like immaterial, but they're so convenient as a, a decoy slash solution proposition. And you can do your bit just by buying one. This is why the government is incentivizing EVs, right? At the same time as they're greenlighting every ill-conceived coal and gas project that's out of sight, out of mind, beyond the continental shelf kind of thing, right? This is how we roll in Australia, right? Refute, repudiate, rebut whatever my argument if you can. But this is how we roll. It's how we really roll. And we need to do something about it because we can't spin our way to a solution to this problem. We have to use the facts and we, then we have to arrange a solution that is in accord with the facts. Otherwise, we're just going to spin our way to failure while a bunch of companies like Transurban and Origin Energy and AGL get rich. And to me, that's just not acceptable. It's also not acceptable to have uh, technically illiterate wombats in government. It's just not, because the facts are so important. You can actually save the planet better in a wild track V6. And to me, <laughs> that's an absurd proposition. If you say it to someone, like if we go out with the Vox Populi, what do you think? Big heavy EV shitter or Ranger wild track V6. What's better for the planet? It'd be EV every time. Only the facts kind of don't agree.